Good to see you all. Let me wish you a belated Merry Christmas. Uh, this is my first time in, I think, nine years to not be at FCQ for Christmas. Uh, so it was weird, um, but it's good to be back. And really, uh, this gets me to what is really my main reason for being back. I'm recruiting um, people to come with me to Belize to start a church plant. <laughs> I was laying on a hammock one day, and I realized that Belizean people need Jesus too. And so... Um, just leave your coats in the church, okay, uh, and we'll head out of here. Um, it was a, a good trip, um, but of course, I'm very glad to be back with you all. I uh, hope you had a great Christmas Eve service, um, and I am excited uh, to, to be back and to start a new year uh, with our church family. Um, we are starting a new sermon series this morning um, for the next few weeks called You Asked For It. Um, your questions, uh, and then straight answers. And so we have been getting, fielding questions from you all um, about things that you're interested in, questions you have about uh, the Christian faith or about the world or about the Bible, things of that nature. We've gotten in a lot of great questions. Um, we still have some weeks to fill, so keep thinking about it. Keep sending your questions. You can just talk to me or talk to Wes. You can drop a connection card in the box uh, in the hallway. You can shoot me an email or, or email FAQ. Uh, at fc3.org, if you can remember that, um, to, to get us started. And the kind of gist of the series is um, for you to kind of have a chance to call the shots on what gets preached, okay? Maybe there's a question or a topic that um, I've never tackled or you've never heard at FCQ. So um, we've gotten some good questions in, uh, and we will start um, this morning. So the question this morning, um, and I saw it, and I immediately thought, this is a great question, uh, and it could not be more practical or more relevant for the situation in the world that we're living in right now. And here's the question. How should Christians act in a world of religious hatred and violence? Uh, how should Christians interact with people of other religions? Um, how should we dialogue with them? Um, how should we respond to um, people of other religions who maybe tend to see us as enemies? Um, who maybe seek to destroy us or give us harm and, and those kind of things. Um, it's a great question. Um, you know, I was in this last week in the office and was checking my mailbox when I got back. And, and I'd actually, every year this happens, but for whatever reason, I'm on a bunch of lists uh, and get greeted, holiday greetings from all kinds of uh, Muslim organizations in Texas and in the southern states. And so... Um, this holiday, in particular, CARE, which is the Council on American-Islamic Relations, sent me like a $100 translated Quran. Um, real nice, real ornate, lots of different pictures. It's like a holiday gift. Um, and then every year, one of my favorite parts of the holiday season is hearing um, from His Highness Prince Aga Khan Shia. Um, he's the imam and president of the Council for the Southwestern United States um, for the, the Islamic community. Um, and he sends actually a personalized card to me. Um, I've never met him. I don't know why he keeps up the correspondence, but he does, and I appreciate it. Um, and also I hear from the Iranian-American Society of Texas. Um, and so it was interesting to kind of be thinking about this topic um, during a part of the year where, for whatever reasons, I get a lot of communications um, from all these um, different groups who seem to be reaching out to me and trying to kind of give me a friendly gift. And um, they say, hey, blessings on a new year for you and your congregation. Um, the Quran I got was not to, to convert me, uh, to convert our congregation, but was to help Protestant pastor understand um, 
Muslims and their Muslim neighbors and what they believe and those kind of things. That's what the translation is geared towards, is to helping someone who might not be familiar with that. Um, I also saw recently, I would throw it up, it had a bad word on it. Uh, there's a meme going around on the internet, I don't know if you've seen it or not. I know some of you have seen it. Um, and it's uh, the classic like interfaith religious bar joke, right? So a Christian and a Jew and a Muslim and an atheist walk into a bar. And then you skip down to the bottom and <coughs> you punch on the joke and they go, and they had a good conversation and became friends. That's what happens when you're a decent human being. <laughs> and I was like, nailed it. <laughs> you got it, all right? Um, they go in and they get along and they can call it to the friends because they're not evil, awful, rotten people, right? You can get along with another human being. Um, our global political environment right now, I think, makes this a very pressing question for Christians. Um, how do we how do we deal with people of other faiths? Um, what's what's what is the posture we're supposed to take? How should we interact and talk and uh, and respond to them? Um, our political climate in America uh, has been fixated on um, for lots of reasons: um, radical Islam um, and acts of terror for the past. Um, over a decade, um, and it's a pressing question every day, and especially during political cycles, right? Um, what's the nation's response supposed to be? Um, what should our response be individually to our neighbors and our community members? Um, what is the Christian, what's the church's response? What should that be if it's different from any of those two? Um, and then just living in the greater Houston area, I know that just about everybody in here probably works with Lots of people from all types of different religious backgrounds and different faiths. Um, and you've had lots of different interesting conversations and, and lots of um, different interactions. And it's Big Church Sunday. We've got our, our kiddos in here. Um, our kiddos are growing up, right? Right next to, to people of other faiths. And their best friends in elementary school and middle school uh, are people who are very devoted Buddhists or Hindus um, or Muslims. Um, and so this is a real burning question. I know even for just some families in our congregation, um, right? What should we keep them away from people of other faiths when they're at such a learning kind of age and influence and, uh, an age where they can be influenced really easily? Should we embrace it? What kind of boundaries should we set? Right? It's, it can be confusing. How do we raise up a kid in a very like pluralistic world? Um, and so uh, I thought it was the, uh, a perfect question to, to start their new year with. Um, the question kind of goes along with the idea that Christians, it kind of presupposes the idea that Christians shouldn't be participating in this hatred and violence, right? That um, we should be leading to a more divided and a more hateful and a more violent world, um, but should somehow try to play peacemaker um, in this very confusing and very fearful and very, very divided and hostile um, environment we live in. I would hope that we're all aware that we did not invent religious hostility and violence, um, nor did anyone in the last 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 years. Um, the very first records we have of human civilization are stories about violence committed towards other people in the name of a god. So this is not a Christian invention. This is not an Islamic invention. Um, this is a human thing, right? And I'll argue later, I think that... Um, for most of these cases of religious violence, um, the religion is not actually the underlying cause. It's more a political cause, usually. Uh, you see this often because religions will kill each other, too. Um, so Christians have definitely committed lots of violence against other religions. 
But they've killed just as many Christians, right? It's a, it's more of a political thing usually when you see it in history and you really study it as a historian. Um, and same with Islamic and, and uh, various other groups. Um, well, I will argue, though, religion just is the perfect justification for violence. Because <clears throat> what better excuse can you have, right, than God being on your side? So there's a very unique religious pool to divisions in humanity, uh, to hostility, walls and barriers, uh, and, and the acts of hatred and violence. Um, so it's not a new thing in our world, right? From the very beginning of humanity, human beings have been doing this to each other. And it is not something that Christians are separated out from. So when we approach this issue of what to do in a world where religions often contribute to problems instead of solve problems, um, it's not a us versus them, right? Um, Christians have their own tainted history of doing really evil things to other people uh, and doing evil things to each other in different denominations, um, right? I mean, as Christians, we're divided also in lots of different areas. And there's been... Um, countless wars and debts over between Catholics and Protestants. Think of the Thirty Years' War and, and over in Ireland. Um, and so it's, it's something that we're a part of, something that we kind of have to deal with as part of our history uh, as well. And so to look at what a Christian response might be, the best place is always, always to go to Jesus and see if he touches on the issue. And in fact, I think he does in a very powerful way. And so you have your Bible, so if you turn me to Luke 10, um, We'll be looking today in Luke 10 at a parable called the Good Samaritan, um, which is probably familiar to most of us, hopefully. Um, sometimes that can be a bad thing, I think, for Christians. If we're over-familiar with the story, we kind of get inoculated to it, and we know it well enough that it doesn't really affect us anymore. Um, I do think the parable of the Good Samaritan is one of the most radical things Jesus says in his ministry, uh, and then he acts it out on multiple occasions. And I think it's also one of the more radical things he does while he's alive uh, during his ministry. Um, one of the most offensive things. One of the things that probably was a contributing factor to his death. Um, so if you read with me, I think the story directly touches on this question. How should Christians following Jesus act in a world um, full of hatred and violence, often in the name of religion? Uh, the story goes like this in verse 25, Luke 10, um, verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to him. Uh, to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus puts the question back on him. He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Um, this is the famous, Jesus' famous great commandment, right? It's double love, the law of double love. Love God and love others, love your neighbors. Um, the way he phrases it here, the lawyer phrases it, has a hint of the golden rule to it as well, right? Love others as yourself. Love your neighbors as yourself. Um, the lawyer perhaps had already heard this um, taught by Jesus before. Um, perhaps he knew this was the right answer. Um, Jesus says very clearly, you know that. Right? There you go. That's what you need to know. Love God with everything that you've got. Love your neighbors just as yourself, and you'll live. There's no more to discuss. Um, Paul picks up on this theme in his later writings, uh, saying, um, if you fulfill the love of Christ, the love of the law of love, um, all of the rest is fulfilled. Right? If you can 
If you can somehow manage to love God with everything you've got and love others just as well as you love yourself, every little other dot, right? All the prophets and laws, Jesus says, will fall into place. They all hinge on those two things. This is the foundation of what God desires for your life. Now, the lawyer, being a good lawyer, immediately wants to define, okay? And he wants to look for the exceptions and legal loopholes. Um, and so he asks a very telling question, um, desiring to justify himself. He says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And so here's the rub. He wants to know who he doesn't have to love, right? Surely I don't have to love everybody. Surely everyone's not my neighbor. And so tell me who it is that I'm allowed to exclude from this law. Um, and we're told he does this to justify himself, right? As an excuse, because he needs a reason. And here he's looking for a religious reason, right? To hate, to not love, to not act in this way toward other people. Um, and Jesus responds with a story, a very famous parable. And the story goes like this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, departed him, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. And bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, quite a bit of money, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asked this question, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer responded, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, Go. And do likewise. Jesus responds to this question, who's my neighbor, by telling a story about a man who's beaten and in need, and then two men who are not neighborly to him, and one man who is neighborly to him. Um, the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho is a downward journey, and it is famous both in the ancient world and even today for being kind of a dangerous journey to take. You definitely don't take it alone. Um, it's kind of bandits road. People would commonly jump out, steal from you, uh, beat you up, kind of leave you there um, for dead. So as the story starts, it's a made-up story, but as the story starts, we're kind of like, uh-oh, it's not good. There's one man to be going down this road. Sure enough, he gets beaten up, and he gets um, stuff taken, and he's left to just die on the road. And then we're told a priest comes along. Now, a priest is Farsi-level religious leader in Israel, in ancient Israel. These are the high-class um, religious elites. They ran the temple. These are your senior pastors. This is your pope and bishops. This is the highest of the high um, in, in the game of religiosity. Okay, and The priest comes and you're thinking, surely if anyone would help the man, it's going to be this man. If anyone's going to fulfill this double law, right, it'll be, be this man. And the priest sees him and very deftly goes to the other side of the road and walks by him. And then another man shows up, and we're told he's a Levite. Now, a Levite is junior varsity um, religious leader. Um, this is uh, someone who does not serve at the temple all the time, um, who probably comes in and out and shifts, and someone who, while he's at the temple, doesn't lead or control it, but does kind of more of the menial task, um, and then uh, has some other roles. So typically, um, we think in ancient Israel, the Levites did the music, um, 
I'm not saying, Chris, that you're at JV level. I'm just saying it's in the Bible. Um, and, uh, and to be honest, we both get thrown under the bus here. Okay, everyone, everyone goes down. Um, you'd think the Levite, right, might take care of him. The Levite pulls the same move as the priestess. Goes the other side of the road. Notice in the text, it makes very clear, it's not that they didn't see the man. They saw him and intentionally went out of their way to not have to be bothered by it and to let him um, just kind of die on the side of the road. Now, telling the story, what you would expect is the priest, the Levite, and then the next, next natural kind of progression would be like an average Jewish person. And then they would be the hero of the story. And it would be like kind of an anti-clerical story, right? Like these hypocritical religious leaders. It's the average person who really got the law and really fulfilled it. But Jesus takes it in a very different direction. And the, the hero, the role of the hero is played here by a Samaritan. And as soon as Jesus says this word, I think the lawyer tenses up. Okay, You'll notice the lawyer, when he's asked who was um, this man's neighbor, um, the lawyer doesn't even say the word Samaritan. He can't bring himself to say it. The reason is because Samaritans and Israelites in the first century had a very deep and very intense hatred for each other that runs back about 700 years before the time of Jesus. Um, and so... Uh, 700 years before Jesus was born, um, an army came in and took out most of Israel, um, destroyed them, and only a few were left. And then later, um, when the rest were exiled into Babylon, the few who remained in Samaria, uh, the capital city of the northern kingdom, intermarried with pagans. And this is against Jewish law. You're not supposed to intermarry with pagans, principally because it would probably lead you to idolatry, which it does. The Samaritans have this kind of half-Jewish, half-pagan religion that they practice. Um, they're interbred. And then they also, because they're not in Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed, construct their own pseudo-temple in Samaria. Now, when the Jews eventually come back to the land, they see the Samaritans. And everything the Samaritans have done screams blasphemy to them. Right? They have interbred, they are worshiping false gods, and they have created a false temple. I mean, on every checklist you go down, it's wrong, 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 wrong. Um, and the Jewish people and the Samaritan people had a long history of committing acts of violence that you might call today in our modern world um, acts of terrorism <coughs> against one another. So about 100 years before Jesus was born, 150 years um, the Jewish people went up and actually attacked the Sumerian temple, much like the Babylonians had done to their temple. They played the part of the evil empire. They played the part of um, the one who destroys that they had experienced at the hands of, of God's enemies, the Babylonians. Uh, they go up and attack the Sumerian temple. It's an act of war. I mean, this is attacking the most sacred thing. It's not long until the Sumerians attack back. And, and what is probably happening when Jesus is around 8 or 10 they sneak into the uh, temple at the time of Passover. So Passover, everybody's in um, Jerusalem from all over the world. And some Samaritans somehow sneak into the temple carrying bags and bags of human bones. Skeletons and skulls and bone after bone. And if you know anything about Judaism, these are unclean things. And the last place they should be is inside of the temple. And the Samaritans dump these bones in the temple and ruin the celebration of Passover. They effectively make this whole celebration unclean. It would be like ruining Easter weekend for the globe. Um, this is an act of terror, right? I mean, there's nothing more you could do to either one of these groups to make them hate the other group more than they do 
Um, so there's this very deep-seated hatred that goes generation to generation to generation to generation. Um, to where when Jesus interacts with the Samaritans and treats them like human beings, even his own disciples are confused. Even after traveling with him for years and years, they go, Jesus should be called on fire to consume this Samaritan town. And Jesus goes, what are you talking about? Have you not heard anything that I've been saying this whole time about loving other people, even your enemies? Um, there's this, such a deep-seated hatred um, between these two groups, which makes the Samaritan playing this role here so shocking. Um, the Samaritans and Jews were uh, racial enemies, um, ethnic enemies. The Jewish people thought they were kind of a mixed breed. Um, they were religious enemies. Um, the Jewish people thought they had blasphemed or worshipped wrongly. Uh, and they were national enemies. They had these kind of territories that they, they tried to defend and protect. Um, there are very few real modern-day comparisons to what we might consider an enemy in America. Um, I think there are some, but, but it's, it's rare to really get this kind of deep-seated hatred to a group of people. Um, this kind of separation. Um, and when Jesus says that the Samaritan plays this role here, Notice what he's saying. The, the first thing he says is that the losers of the story are the religious people. Um, the ones who theoretically should know better. Um, and most people have seen them using their religion to justify their actions. They're self-justifying people. Um, and so a lot of scholars and preachers suggest often that one of the reasons perhaps they wouldn't have touched this man is coming from the temple. They don't want to be unclean. And so again, what, maybe it's a dead corpse there. Um, might get in the way of their business at the temple, might get in the way of their cleanliness um, going back to their families. And so they cross to the other side. In this way, their religion, right, is justifying the ability to leave this man alone and not give him the help that he needs. Um, perhaps others have suggested, you know, that's not the greatest theory. Perhaps they're just motivated by fear, right? Um, which we would say is rightful fear. This is a scary place to be. And if there's a man lying half dead, that usually means the people who hurt him are not far away, right? And so you would do best not to stand there and help, but to keep on going and going faster. For whatever reason, these men, these religious men, have justification in their mind to not <coughs> act loving towards this man. And instead, it's the least likely person in the world who loves this unnamed man. And who loves him sacrificially. I mean, notice, even in just the story, how like unending the language is. It kind of overflows. He does all of this for this man. He bandages his wounds. He puts him on his own animal. He pays about a month's worth of rent at the end. He writes a blank check saying, whatever else he needs, it's on my tab. I'll pay you when I come back again. Um, and he helps this man out. He loves this man. He fulfills the law, um, this neighbor love law. And he does it as a Samaritan to a person that he does not know. And then Jesus asks this question, and this is, I think, the thrust of the story. The question he asks the lawyer is, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Notice, this is a different question than what the man asked Jesus. If you don't notice this, I think you missed the story. The man asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus asked, who was that person's neighbor? We might say it like this. Um, Jesus reframes the question. No longer is it, who is my neighbor, but will you be a neighbor? 
the whole point of this, right, is that the man is unnamed. We don't know if he's a Jew, if he's a Samaritan, just a, a random Roman citizen, right? We don't know. It's not, you're not picking the group of person, of people that you're going to love. It's who actually creates a neighbor. Um, you might say that neighbors are things that are created uh, out of compassion and love. Neighbors are categories that you presuppose. One scholar, Heinrich Grieven, says this. I love it. One cannot define one's neighbor. He says one can only be a neighbor. You create your neighbors with your choices. Jesus doesn't say who was the Samaritan's neighbor. Just who was the neighbor to the man in trouble? Regardless of who he was or what he had and what kind of um, hostility or boundary walls were between them. And the man came and brings up to say, this is a Samaritan. Jesus says, just go be like the Samaritan. Go create a neighbor out of someone you don't know, you have no name for, and love them. And Jesus says, love them and love them sacrificially. It's the thing we see throughout Jesus' ministry. Love them even if they're your enemy. Love them no matter the boundaries that are between you. Love them no matter the cost that might come to you because of it. Whether it might get you in danger, whether it might cost you time or money, the Samaritan sacrificially loves and perhaps even loves his enemy here. Now when Jesus teaches this, and when he strikes kind of the nerve of the hatred and hostility and violence between the Samaritans and the Jews, I think we have an almost perfect analogy to pull from the Gospels into our world today. If we were to ask us, how would Jesus expect us to respond um, to other religions, to people who we find different from ourselves, for whatever reason, ethnic or national or religious, how would he respond even, um, or expect us to respond even to people who um, we're naturally hostile towards, who are hostile towards us, who hate us, or who inspire fear in us, who confuse us, who even commit acts of violence towards us. And Jesus' challenge, both then and today, is make them your neighbor. Love them. Love them sacrificially. Love them even though you're afraid. Love them even though it might cost you. Love them as you would want someone to love yourself. Break down these walls of hostility. Work to make peace. Work to, to bring reconciliation, even between groups that have been separated. The task, I think, for every generation of Christians is to look into the world and, and ask themselves, who have we not been neighborly to? And how might we make them our neighbors? It's not to divide the world up into people who are our neighbors and who are not. People who we're supposed to love and not supposed to love. It's instead to look out and see who are people we have not loved. Or who are people the world has not loved. And then start to love them. To think of creative ways to, to love them and to engage with them. Um, when we apply this, I think, to the question of how Christians should act in an environment, an arena where there is religious pluralism and, again, religious hatred and violence. I think some, um, some things come to mind, perhaps some of them common sense. Um, the first thing um, that I would say here is um, Christians are, are uniquely called to love people of other religions. And at FCQ, we always have this disclaimer. Um, to really love somebody, you have to know somebody. You cannot love an idea, and you cannot love a group of people. Um, and so we've said this before in various different contexts, right? 
It's, you can't say I love Muslims if you don't know a Muslim, right? So here's this question where I add on to that question of I love. What's their name? I love homeless people. Okay, who? It's really easy to love an idea, right? It's a lot more messy and tricky and requires a lot more commitment of you to actually love a person and sacrifice for the person to hear their story. It's really easy to alienate a group of people as an idea. It's much harder when you hear their individual story, when you become friends with them, when you share memories with them. We're called to love people. The good news for us is we have plenty of opportunities to do this. We don't have to travel around the world to do this. Um, just go next door, and I'm sure you'll find people much different than you who you can love, who you can get to know. I think um, this is the next step for Christians, right, is to actually get to know these people. Um, be willing to learn about their faith. Be willing to learn about their beliefs and their ideas about the world. Um, be willing to do so in such a way that um, precludes you from stereotyping them. Or painting with too big of a, a stroke, too broad of a brush stroke. Um, as Christians, I would never want to be defined by the most extreme or radical group that claims Christianity. Uh, and as such, I take it as my job to extend that same dignity to people of other faiths. To one, not assume that just the people making the headlines represent all of them. And two, not assume that even if that is the majority of a religion or a faith community, that that means that's true of that individual in front of me. Um, I once had the pleasure of sitting in on a world religions class uh, in a secular environment that explained Christianity with about the same depth that they explained um, Islam and Judaism and, and those kinds of things. And I'm not a scholar in Islam or Judaism, a little bit of Judaism, I guess, um, but do get paid to read and write and talk about Christianity, and I can tell you I cringed hearing what they said about Christianity. Right? It was, I mean, you can't, I don't, in my mind, you can't just describe it in one little paragraph, right? Most of what you said is not true about me and my beliefs and my faith community. Um, it's the stereotype, right? It's the, the Cliff Notes version, and it leaves so much left out. It leaves so much wanted. It leaves so much to nuance and say, well, that could sound really bad, let me explain this to you a little bit better, that sort of thing. Um, as Christians, I think we should never be accepting of the Cliff Notes version of other religious faiths and beliefs and practices. Um, in the same way that we don't want that, right? We're to love them as our neighbors just the way we would want to be loved as a neighbor, right? Hear out my side of the story. Hear out my individual beliefs and, and the beliefs of my specific um, faith community and context. Um, I would say this as well, part of loving and part of our engagement with people who are different uh, and who, who perhaps have some boundary between us is to look for what is shared between groups. Uh, I can tell you this, as someone who has taught in high school and now teaches in a university, um, I've always taught Christianity classes to students who are not Christians, who are very devout Muslims. Uh, and especially in the university setting now, um, all kinds of different religions. It's a very interesting thing. Um, and what I can tell you is the students who are willing to kind of engage with me, um, I learn a lot about their faith. They learn a lot about my faith. And I notice a lot in common. And we actually build a lot of our conversations around, like, hey, that's pretty similar. We might use different words for it, but that's pretty similar. Um, 
I was reading through the foreword for the Quran that I got sent, and he was describing uh, in Islam, um, and Muslims are very careful, uh, very dogmatic about this. If the Quran has been translated, if it's in another language, it's, they don't consider it a translation. There's only one Quran. Everything else, if it's, the moment it's been taken to another language, is an interpretation. And they don't even use the word translation. They call it an interpretation. Um, because they believe that not only the message of the Quran is inspired, but also the form of it, the Arabic. Um, uh, as someone who learned Hebrew and Greek, I can kind of appreciate that. Right? In the sense that the reason we have all these different translations is because, in a sense, they're all making different interpretations of one shared common foundational text. And as anyone in here who knows more than one language knows, the moment you translate something, you lose a little bit. Now that doesn't make translations unnecessary or bad or anything like that, right? But maybe the form um, that it was originally written in has some things to learn, um, some things to, to teach you, um, to teach us as a community. Um, so, so look for what's shared. And then I would also say this, and this is perhaps where I would be most different with um, certain approaches for ecumenicalism, which is Christians getting along with other Christians, and interfaith dialogues. I would say it's very important when we're dialoguing and interacting with people of other faiths to appreciate, notice, and discuss what makes us different, what makes us unique, what is distinctive about my faith and my beliefs, and what is distinctive about your faith and your beliefs. Um, we are at the end of a long political project where we thought maybe different people and different religions could get along if we ignored what makes us different. We had this movement called deism where everybody decided to use the word God and kind of forget about what made their God different from other gods. This is why in America on the dollar bill it says in God we trust. Imagine changing that to in Jesus we trust. It would not happen. Right? There would be all kinds of political upheaval, all kinds of protests, all kinds of different things. Well, if Christians believe that Jesus is God, they should clue us in on something. Other people aren't thinking of the same thing that we're thinking of when we use that word God. Right? Um, and if we force the issue about it, people start fighting really quickly and get angry at each other really quickly. Um, and so we've done things, the whole world has done this. It's a philosophical movement um, where we've tried to ignore the differences. Anyone I think who's ever been in a relationship knows if you ignore problems or differences, um, they don't usually just resolve themselves. They usually come back to bite you from behind in places that you never expect, right? Um, I think actually the better way forward is to acknowledge the differences. Now to do so, though, you have to do so with respect and humility, right? I mean, you can't be mean about it. You can't be arrogant about it. Um, but I think really the only way I know what it is to be a Christian next to a Muslim friend of mine is to know what makes us different, to know what my beliefs are. Um, and so you, you look for what's unique and, and you embrace that and talk about that in a sense of respect and humility. And, and this dialogue, I think, creates shared confidence and shared trust um, and creates the, the space needed um, for what is perhaps religious alienation to, to disappear. Now, unfortunately, the reason I think this is so hard is because it requires that you know your own faith very well. Uh, I think one of the biggest things Christians face when they start to talk to or, or interact with someone of a different faith is that they really don't know why they believe what they believe. 
and we have a hard time articulating it to, to other people. So it's easier just to stay away, to not have your ideas challenged, to not have to articulate your ideas. It's easier just to keep your kids away and not have to be able to teach your children and articulate to your children um, those kind of things. Uh, it's very hard when all of a sudden you're in a dialogue. Um, that's why I've suggested before in public and will continue to suggest um, the task of a Christian parent, I think, before teaching your children other religions is to teach your child their own religion. They can only know the difference between themselves and a Muslim friend if they know what they are, right? If they know their own faith, they know their own traditions, they know their own practices. Um, I think that's true even of adults. Um, and the last thing I would say uh, is that Christians are called, um, in any circumstance, to not be afraid or not be led by fear. And the scriptures are full of this. Um, don't be afraid is the most repeated command in the Bible. Um, we're told that perfect love, the perfect love we see in Christ, casts out all fear. The Samaritan embodies this, right? He's not afraid of this very scary situation. And without this fear, he's able to do this remarkable act of love. The only way we'll be able to, I think, adopt a Christian uh, posture in this world um, of religious hatred and violence is to um, have a, a hope and a love so big that it eclipses our fear. And part of that is trusting the truth. So as a Christian, and as a pastor, and as a professor, I believe very firmly, a very strong conviction, it's not like a flimsy, I came to it a couple days ago, that the Christian faith is the truth. I believe the triune God is actually how God exists. I believe that Jesus is actually God's Son incarnate. I believe that his salvation, his death, actually was the um, way that human beings can find salvation. Um, now, my conviction in that, though, paradoxically allows me to relax about that truth. Um, to not have to defend it, if that makes sense. Um, because I believe that it's actually true, I don't have to worry about whether everybody else exactly believes that it's actually true. Does that make sense? Um, I, I, I can let it stand for itself. Right? I can be open to conversations and questions. Because I don't think I'm protecting some idea that has to be guarded and hid from questioning or seeking. I think I'm going towards what true questioning and seeking will take me towards. And the more I question, and the more I seek, and the more I'm challenged, and the more I challenge somebody else, we'll get closer and closer and closer to what is the truth. If we're truly seeking and questioning, if we're truly going towards it with an open mind. In my experience, the people who fight the hardest to make other people believe exactly what they believe are the people who are most unsure that it's true. And that creates in them a desire for others to say the exact same words that they say and believe the exact same things that they say because otherwise there's this deep unsettledness in the bottom of their, their stomach. I have very strong convictions about a lot of things. And I rarely, though, expect other people to have those convictions. And it doesn't bother me when they don't. Like, I'm not flustered by it. I'm open to conversation. I'm open to being challenged. I'm open to learning new things. Why? Because I think it's actually true. It's not something I created that I have to protect. It, it's not going to disappear on me. Does that make sense? There's not going to be a question that's thrown my way that's going to somehow um, 
get me off the path um, if I truly believe that it's true. Um, and so I think ironically and paradoxically, the more you believe in an absolute truth, and then the Christian faith is absolutely true, the more you're actually freed up to have conversations, to encourage truth-seeking, to encourage questioning, um, within a community and outside of a community, um, in interfaith dialogues. And so, um, this is what I would suggest. This is what I think Jesus teaches us to do. How, how should Christians act in a world full of religious violence and hatred? Well, they should act like Jesus acted. They should love. They should create neighbors. They should, in creative, unique, and sometimes costly sacrificial ways, see enemies and seek reconciliation and seek love and seek mercy and seek friendship. As Christians, we are called to act the way that God acts. We're called to have the character that God and that Jesus has. And God, seeing us as enemies, came to us, bridged the gap on his own, and saved us, made neighbors out of us, in fact, made us sons and daughters, made us family members. And so when we encounter people, whether they're different types of Christians, or different religious people, or different nationalities, or different ethnicities, I think we're called to adopt that same posture. And love, and humility, and perhaps sacrificial acts of mercy and kindness. Um, to look out in the world around us. Um, despite what types of hostility and barriers are already erected, and say, who can I make my neighbor? Um, tomorrow, in the weeks to come, um, who can we as a generation, who as we as a church community, reach out to and make our neighbors? Um, I think that's the question that Jesus asks us in response to our question. Jesus, how should we treat people of other religions? Jesus says, well, how will you make a neighbor out of them? And just to love them as you would love yourself. Extended on the same mercy, not only that you would want to send it to yourself, but that you have received from God himself. Um, and the more, I think, that we can appreciate the salvation we receive from Jesus, the more equipped we'll be to be able to offer that same type of mercy and grace, same type of sacrificial love to the people around us. Would you pray with me?